you have your Bibles, take them to Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew 26. And uh, want us to look closely at Matthew chapter number 26. All of the kids going to Children's Chapel, you can make their way there. Good to see Sam leading the charge there in Children's Chapel. I know you'll have a wonderful time. Matthew chapter number 26 and verse number 57. And if you would, as you're turning, please stand out of honor and reverence to God's word. Matthew chapter number 26 and verse number 27. For several Sundays, I think I've counted four of them, we've been looking at the days of Jesus' passion. It represents the final days of our Lord Jesus in leading up to the cross of Calvary. The word passion does not mean a lover's kiss, a lover's feeling. It is a word that actually means suffering. So we've been looking at the suffering of our Lord Jesus on this final week. And we find ourselves on the last day before, uh, or the, on, on the day of Jesus' execution. On the day of the cross. And what I want to do is to break up this day into two parts. All that happened in this day uh, could not be summed up in several weeks. We could look at all manner of different things, but I want to break it up into two parts. This morning, we'll look at the, the conviction of the Lord Jesus, how he was tried and found, found guilty before the Jews, Pilate, and the crowd that was there that day. Tonight, we will look at the crucifixion, and we'll also be partaking of the Lord's Supper. I can't believe how wonderfully the Lord has worked it out on Wednesday We'll look at the day of his passion where he resided in the tomb. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't come back, we're going to talk about an empty grave. Amen. But Matthew chapter number 26, look at verse number 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. And the scribes and the elders were assembled. Peter followed afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought, uh, sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, through though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answer thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? And Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you hereafter, Shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven? Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we... We have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then they then did they spit on his face and buffeted him. Him uh, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee. Now I want you to skip over to chapter number seven. Look at the first two verses there. 
When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away to, and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Skip down to verse number 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused, and when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they uh, witness against thee? And he answered him never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now, that what, now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had a, a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Before, uh, therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ? For, they, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife said, sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said unto him, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ. And they said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail nothing, but that rather the turmoil was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, delivered he delivered him to be crucified. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want us to look at this day, the early part of this day. And I want us to see, well, for the entire day, I want us to see that this is a day of mediation, of mediation. And I'll explain that as we get into our message and further along during this day. But what Jesus did on this day was mediate a way between sinful man and a holy God. And I want us to see that in this first part of a day of mediation in His uh, condemnation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love You. We have walked upon holy ground this morning in the scriptures we have entered in on what only uh, what only could be called a miscarriage of justice a grievous uh, a grievous crime against justice father i pray that you would open hearts and minds to look upon jesus as he is tried as that lamb without spot and without blemish as that lamb before her his shearers as dumb he openeth not his mouth God, let us see His condemnation. And let us see that we should have been the ones condemned. We should have stood guilty before the eyes of God and before the eyes of men. Crowds should have cried for our blood, and yet His was taken. Father, speak to hearts in only the way that You can. In Jesus' precious name, Amen and Amen. In a Newsweek article from August the 4th, 2014, 
journalist Taylor Walford reports that there is a distinct possibility that an innocent man was not only convicted of a crime that he did not commit, but was also placed on death row and finally executed in the state of Texas for a crime he didn't commit. Cameron Todd Willingham was sentenced to death by lethal injection for the murder of his three young children. You see, his children died back in 1991 when their house uh, caught on fire just two days before Christmas. Walford, in his article, wrote this. The state's case against Willingham rested on two pillars. Forensic evidence showing arson as the cause of the children's death and the testimony of a jailhouse informer, Johnny E. Webb, who testified that William Ham had confessed to the crime to him. William Ham's attorney called only one witness at the trial. Cameron Todd Willingham was executed by the state of Texas on December 17, 2004. Later on, an independent study was done of this arson evidence, so-called. And the independent study concluded that the arson was nothing more than an accident. As far as the testimony of Johnny Webb, the jailhouse informant, uh, there is evidence to suggest that even though Webb from the stand testified that he was given no special treatment for his testimony against Willingham, he, it is found in, in court documents that his a trial and his own trial was speedily saw, saw through uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, probation and that he was also benefited financially by his testimony, by, by deposits of a wealthy friend of the prosecuting attorney who put money in his jailhouse bank account. It's all very shady in what took place there. Later, Webb even had a, a convulsion of conscience and tried to recant. He had filed papers with the local court in order to recant his statements. Those papers were mysteriously never seen the light of day through legal maneuvering on the part of the district attorney. To this day, Johnny Webb insists that Willingham never told him nothing. Here in the state of Texas, we find a man who was innocent dying in the execution chamber. Yet such a seeming injustice, as I tell you that story, it stirs our hearts. I can almost see a little flinch within you saying this is wrong. This is, this is impossible. It's something that wants to move us to action. It distills in our hearts a pity and a compassion for this man that died who was innocent. Yet such a perversion of justice is only a distant echo to, of, of what lies before us in our text today. Although uh, William Ham may well have been a, uh, a self-respecting man, he was not utterly innocent. 
Here we find in our text the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, in a travesty of injustice, convicted of no crime and sentenced to death. You see, uh, this it was so massive are, are the details of this day that we simply cannot look at all of them, but we'll break them up into two. And I see this as, again, as a day of mediation. Before we look upon Jesus as simply a sad case of miscarriage of justice, you must realize, we must realize, that what is going on in our text, uh, there is more to it than just the death of an innocent man. What is taking place in this text is not just a historical account. It is something that has to do directly with you and with me. It has a direct impact on our lives. You see, what is taking place is is for you and I, Jesus was suffering this day, suffering condemnation, suffering the rejection of men in the judicial system so that He might be a mediator. Do you know what a mediator is? It is a go-between. It is one which negotiates. It is one that goes in the behalf of two people. It is what Job calls a daysman. One that can place his hand on one group and place a hand on another group and bring them together in agreement. Jesus is a mediator. Through the events of this day, Jesus is taking a hand and placing it on sinful man and taking His hand and placing it on a holy God and bringing the two together. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also has suffered for sins the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. 2 Timothy 5.21 For He, God, hath made Him sin, Jesus, uh, for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. What Jesus is doing is vitally important for our eternal salvation, for our reception by God in heaven. That is why Paul told young Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is a mediator. Never forget what Jesus endured in that courtroom and on the cross was for you and for me. Jesus was in effect laying His hand on humanity and saying, I take their guilt on Myself. That is what is happening in these early morning hours. As we look in these early morning hours on the day of Jesus' death on the cross, every one of us can see the one truly an absolutely innocent man who has ever lived be declared guilty in three trials and in doing so took our guilt on himself. He took our shame on his own self. Now, when we look at that, I want us to see first of all, he was tried by a religious council. He was tried by a religious council. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus 
cleansing the temple as he did earlier in the week and and his bold face unveiling of the hypocrisy of the religious leadership of the day was the straw that broke the camel's back. All through his activity in that week it says that the scribes and Pharisees sought occasion to kill him, to end him. They were afraid of the public at large because they loved him. They saw Jesus as a prophet like John the Baptist. They were afraid of them, Afraid to apprehend Jesus in broad daylight. But they wanted Jesus dead. Quickly and quietly. They bribed Judas uh, uh, Iscariot for Jesus' whereabouts. And arrested Jesus in in our text. They had brought him through the night to try him. And to be finally done with Jesus once and for all. But what they did... To achieve that conviction staggers the imagination. What hoops they jumped through. What laws they trampled. What customs they dodged. It defies reason. I want you to see that this morning. First of all, I want you to see their convening was wrong. Their convening was wrong. Look at verse number 57 in chapter number 26. And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now that don't sound right. You see, we must remember that Jesus is now being arrested in the wee hours of the morning. Do you remember last week how that Jesus was in that garden prayer praying, not my will but thy will be done. He kept going to his disciples and they were supposed to be praying but they had fallen asleep. And falling asleep again and again. Why? Because it was a late hour in the night. The flesh is, uh, what is it? The, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is in the wee hours of the morning that Jesus came. And he had the betrayer's kiss upon his cheek. They laid hold on Jesus. And now we find ourselves late into the night. May well being in the early a.m. morning. Not going to the traditional place of assembly in the temple where the Sanhedrin would make judgments, but no, going to uh, Caiaphas' house. Verse number 29, it said that all the council was brought together. That in itself, that in itself, the Sanhedrin was not just a handful of people. It wasn't just five or six guys that they got together to try Jesus. The Sanhedrin comprised uh, more, more and less, probably more than a hundred people gathered together in the midnight hour to try Jesus. It was highly irregular. It could well have been several. It could well have been several hundred people gathered in that night. This was all highly irregular. And as a matter of fact, that the way the trial was convened was absolutely illegal. According to the rabbinic law, according to the court procedures of the Jewish people, they were never to meet at night. And they were never to meet outside of the temple grounds. All decisions, all judgments were to be made on the sacred ground of the temple mount and they were to also be done in the broad daylight of the sun. This was all wildly wrong. What they did was wrong. 
As we, as we see in verse number 58, but Peter followed afar off uh, unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Peter is hanging out in the, in the palace of the high priest, not down at the temple, not down in a place where they should have been meeting to make these judgments. No, in a place called the, in a place that was known as the high priest's palace. I mean, can you imagine something like this? You're accused of the crime. The police purposely come at midnight to knock on your door, find you in your pajamas, handcuff you, throw you in the back of the car, go over to the sheriff's house where the town council was gathered together to make their, the, 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 the judicial proceedings in his living room and, and to pronounce a guilty sentence to whisk you off and take you to execution. This is all underhanded. This is all dirty. It is, it is wicked. It is unjust what is happening uh, to Jesus. This was a prescription for injustice. It was highly irregular and it was shady at best. Notice we see not only the convening was wrong, but the case was rigged. You and I must understand that what these men were doing was completely illegal. Illegal. You know, they want to try Jesus for breaking the law, and yet they are trampling all over their own law. You see, the Sanhedrin was a council that was empowered only to act as a judge and a jury. Two people have a conflict. Someone accuses another of blasphemy. That accusation is brought before them and they are to make a determination. They are never to be used as a prosecution body. They're never to bring the charges. The charges must be brought to them. That's how their legal system works. Nowhere is it written that they could bring charges against someone. They only could try the ones already made. But here they were. Here they were acting as a prosecutor, which was illegal. But the reality is they, were, they had no charge against him. There was no charge. This was, as we'd call, a witch hunt. This is just fishing for a charge. They had nothing to charge him. They had no reason to arrest him. Basically, when they arrested Jesus in the garden, they had no warrant. They had no law broken to accuse him of. They just apprehended him and dragged him in so that they might interrogate him and find some kind of wrong. They, they were trying to find a legitimate accusation against Jesus and they could find none. So what did they do? They disintegrated, they downgraded into finding false witnesses. You'll notice in our text that they, they tried to bring out false witnesses. Verse number 60, and they found none. Or verse number 59, now the chief priests and the elders, all, all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Although many false witnesses came, they found none. Think about this. There's a long line of liars standing outside the door. The only thing they've got to do is find two that say the same thing about what Jesus did that was wrong. 
They had to have two liars that agreed. And this long line of liars come one after the other and none of them can agree. They couldn't find an accusation again. Finally, at the end of the line, they found two guys that had heard what Jesus supposedly had said about, him, about himself. They, uh, the Mosaic, uh, they, uh, oh yeah, the Mosaic law stipulated that if a person was found to give false testimony, they would suffer the same fate as the guilty one found in that, uh, in that uh, judicial process. So think about this. If you perjured yourself and that person had, uh, had the result of the crime to be stoned to death and it was found out that you had lied, you would automatically be stoned to death. If that person had been crucified, you would be crucified. It was something to try to protect the court from those that would perjure themselves, from those uh, that, would, uh, uh, that would lie on the witness stand, to be a false witness. And yet, that's not what they're doing. They're trying to find false witnesses. They're paying people to line up and tell stories and lies about, about Jesus. They tried to find witnesses. They, they violated the law of God by lying in order to get what they wanted, a death sentence. They, they laid aside centuries of tradition and violated every law under the, uh, in order to criminalize Jesus. Even many of their own testimony, uh, uh, even many of their testimony could not be used for evidence. Finally, one witness, look at what the witness said. Uh, they said uh, in verse number 61, and this fellow said, I am, uh, Jesus said, I am able that the tent women, and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now that's a bold faced lie, but evidently there were two witnesses that said the same thing. They had heard the same thing. What did Jesus say? Do you remember that passage of scripture? What Jesus said, he said, destroy this temple. And I will build it back in three days. He's talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. But they, you talk about misquoting Jesus. There's a heretical book out there that says your Bible is full of holes and misquotations. I tell you what, the only misquotation of Jesus is found right written by the Holy Ghost right here. They misquoted Jesus. Jesus never said tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. He said tear down, uh, uh, tear down the temple and I'll build it back in three days. Jesus said tear down this temple and I'll build it back in three days. Here is their so-called story. It was rigged. This whole case was rigged. It was a, it was a sham. And we find this case was rigged. We find this convening was wrong. We find their conviction was wicked. Look at verse number 63. The high priest arose and said unto him, Answer thou nothing? What is it which thou uh, the, these witnesses against thee? And Jesus heard, held, excuse me, and Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto them, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of, uh, of power and con, uh, uh, con, coming in the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus held his peace. Isaiah 53 and verse number 7 says, As a sheep before her shearers has done, he openeth not his mouth. The high priest then forces the issue in verse number 64. I adjure you by the God of heaven. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And although Jesus never flaunted his office as the Messiah, he never denied it. At the very start of his ministry, after reading in the synagogue the messianic passage in Isaiah about how he had come to bind up the brokenhearted and to bind and to set it not those that were in captivity and set the captives free, and as he made that prophecy, Jesus said, "This prophecy is come to pass in your ears." He affirmed his messianic position. He also at um, with the woman at the well. Uh, when we find Jesus speaking with the woman at the well, she referred to the coming of Messiah. And He told her, I, I that speak unto thee am He. He told the Pharisees that disputed over His character using the ancient title, Before Abraham was, I am. And in this sham of a trial, Jesus did not shy away from His deity. He declared it. He reached back to Daniel chapter number 7. You know, we've been there in Daniel chapter 7 on Wednesday nights. And that picture, how that the one was brought before the Son of God, or brought before God Almighty, coming in clouds. He was brought before Him. And there was found no fault in Him. Jesus reaches back to that ancient epitaph and says, the next time you see me, I'll be coming in the clouds of glory, we, we find that Jesus did not deny who He was. In that instance, they charged Him guilty of what? Telling the truth. Revealing who He truly was, the Messiah. They pronounced His death sentence immediately and sought to carry out. He realized that rabbinic law absolutely prohibited such action. Rabbinic law states that if a guilty if a guilty verdict is found in a capital case, that the that the Sanhedrin was to wait three days before they carried out the sentence. Three days, but so that new evidence might be brought to light, new testimony might be brought to light to save the the one convicted of the crime. Three days so that the Sanhedrin may fast and pray, making sure that they made the right decision. You see, everything in rabbinic law tilted the court towards mercy. Towards mercy. You take, for example, the way they voted. In the Sanhedrin, when they voted on the guilt or innocence of an individual, they always started with the very youngest one in the room. Why? Because he's the most impressionable. Many of the renowned men of age in that, in that Sanhedrin would have an influence, an undue influence on that young man. The young man was to cast, the younger was to cast the first vote, then the next younger, the next one. Finally, the oldest one of the Sanhedrin was to conclude the voting. Also, if the voting was unanimous, you know how in our courtroom today, if we get 12 in a jury that give the same verdict, that kind of puts the stamp of approval on what was taking place. Here with the Sanhedrin, where they were probably 70 or above in that number, if they had a unanimous vote of guilt, of execution, then the person was actually set free. Why? Because a unanimous verdict among so many would indicate that mercy had been completely thrown out of the courtroom. 
and the guilty. It was all tilted towards mercy. We find none of that here. There is no mercy for Jesus. There is no mercy on His life. There is no doubt that He is automatically condemned to death. And they sought that very night. Didn't pray about it. Didn't seek other witnesses. He had no defense that night. He had no one to stand before Him. None of His friends were called. None of His disciples were called to to testify on His behalf. Everything was tilted. Not Not to mercy, but to murder. Everything was tilted in that direction. What they did in that hour was wicked. It was a travesty, an injustice beyond compare. You see, Jesus was given no mercy. They began immediately to abuse Him. Look at what they did. In that moment, in that moment, um, and they, they, uh, verse number 67, they did, they did, then, then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and the others smote him with the palms of their hands. Just as immediately as the, as the high priest rend his garments, which is another thing. The high priest was never to rend his garments. God told Aaron at the death of his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, do not rend your garments. The garments of the high priest were never to be torn. And yet this man, in a blatant disregard for the law of God, rips his own garments. And as soon as he does so, that scene became a melee as people began to spit and to smite and to mock the Lord Jesus who uttered barely a few words in his defense. This, he was tried by a religious council and found guilty. You and I, what if we were tried today? What if the law of God were brought to bear upon us and we entered into a holy courtroom before a God who knows all things, who knows every sin, every lie? It would be so easy to convict us, even even if the court were tilted to mercy. Even if the court were tilted to mercy, three days would pass and there would be no evidence to the contrary that we were not guilty. You see what is happening is it should have been you. It should have been me. It should have been me standing alone in that courtroom in the midnight hour. It should have been me with the angry eyes, the cutting eyes of those men piercing my very soul and heart. It should have been me with the the finger of guilt pointed towards me. It should have been me that had the gavel of justice rain down on my life. Jesus stands in your place and in my place. Here we see He was not only tried by a religious council, He was tried by a Roman court. Flip over to chapter number 27. And then the morning, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders and the, and the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. You see, although the Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty and sentenced Him to death, They couldn't carry out the death sentence. You see, the judicial system under Roman rule was basically gutted of any kind of power. Of any kind of power to carry out a sentence. All the sentencing had to make its way through the Roman courtroom. They could not carry out the sentence. Roman law prohibited it. So they would seek Rome to carry out 
their desire. That's why they just didn't take Jesus out and automatically uh, string him up and crucify him in the midnight hour. They had to have Roman approval. And so they took him to Pilate. Now when we look at other gospel accounts, they, we find that upon hearing that Jesus was a Galilean, Pilate said, aha, I'll send him to Herod. Herod is the king of the Jewish people. The king there, he, king of Israel, he'll pass sentence. He's from the northern country. He'll, make, he'll pass sentence. Well, all Herod did, basically Herod Antipas, was merely questioned Jesus. He was intrigued about his ability to, uh, to work miracles. He was hoping Jesus would pull a rabbit out of his hat or something there. And when Jesus refused and, and closed his mouth and said nothing to Herod Antipas, his, his men there mocked Jesus and, and made a, a show of him. And finally, Herod said, away with him. Take him back to Pilate. So so here Jesus ends back up with Pilate. It was then that Jesus was tried in a Roman court. Now I want you to look at this Roman court with me. You see, all uh, well, first of all, he was questioned. Uh, his, 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 he questioned, Pilate questioned his authority. Jesus stood before Pilate, no doubt bruised and beaten. No doubt his face was dripping with spit and red with the slaps across his face. Pilate goes directly to his concern. He was charged. Look at what Pilate said in verse number 11. And when Jesus stood before the governor, the governor asked him again, Art thou? Uh, asked him saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Pilate goes right to the, right to the point of the matter. You see, Pilate was placed in charge of keeping the peace there in Jerusalem and in Judea and in this, uh, this area of Israel. He was charged with keeping the peace. An uprising of someone claiming to be a king of the Jews would have brought him disfavor before Caesar's eyes. The Roman governor was questioning Jesus' authority. You know, earlier in the week, do you remember what happened early in the week? Jesus was welcomed in in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy riding upon a donkey, a foal of an ass into the city and how that they laid palm branches before Him and stretched out their garments hailing Him. He that comes in the name of the Lord, here is the King of the Jews. They hailed Him in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that He was a King. Jesus only says to Him, He does not deny it. He does not admit it. He says, Thou sayest. He who was legitimately king in lineage from both his mother, the blood of his mother, and the inheritance of his father, he was the son of David. He's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And by his heavenly father, he was king of kings and lord of lords. He that was king of all creation held his tongue. If there was anyone in that room that had royal blood flowing through their veins, it was this man with spittle upon his face. This man that had been beaten and bruised before them. If there was any man in this world that was a king, the king of glory, who at once could call down 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, it was this man bound before Pilate who is cavalierly questioning his authority. He questioned his authority. He concluded his acquittal. What was Pilate's decision? He could see that this man was no threat to Roman rule. 
In further discussion with Jesus in the Gospel of John's account, we see that Jesus does not claim to be a king. It does claim to be a king, but that His kingdom is not of this world. You see, Pilate knew right away that Jesus was not a rebel rouser. He was not a Barabbas. He was not one that would cause a great insurrection in the city of Jerusalem. He was no insurrectionist. He could see that Jesus was on trial only because of the jealousy of the religious elite. The chief priests and elders, elders lit into Him. Look at what they said. They lit into Jesus. And he answered him, and never, uh, verse number, uh, then Pilate said to him, here is, wait, verse number 12, and when he was accused, then he was accused of the elder, chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Here's Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate questions his authority. Jesus says, very little thou sayest. And all of a sudden, the high priests and the elders attack him with verbal abuse and with, and with convictions and accusations. He makes himself a king. He makes himself a lord. He's a threat to Caesar. And Jesus says nothing. Pilate saw right through their trap. He saw right through them. They railed on him and hurled at Jesus everything they could in order to kill him. Pilate could see through their plot. He knew that this was just a settling of a personal score. He had been warned by his wife in a dream. We read that. How that she had had a dream and suffered much of this man. Stay away from this just man. In order to dodge a convicting sentence, Pilate put it before the people. He brought out Jesus on one hand and he brought out a man named Barabbas on the other and he gave them the choice. Surely the choice was obvious. It would be only make sense to take Christ, to take Jesus over the murderous Barabbas. Justice would be prevailed and no decision would be made on his part. But that was not the case. They, they chose the criminal over the Christ. And there was no doubt in the mind of Pilate that this Jesus was innocent. Look at verse number 24. 24 in this same chapter. Verse number 24. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail nothing, but the rather the turmoil was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude. I am innocent of the blood of this just man. He said time and time again, I find no fault in Him. There is no accusation. There's no reason for this madness. There's no reason for this conviction. There's no reason for this capital offense. There's no reason for the death penalty. I find no fault in this man. And yet, we find that they demanded the death of Jesus. He he had announced His verdict. And what was his verdict? He had said that he was innocent. The verdict of Pilate was that Jesus was innocent of all charges. He could not be charged. But then later, not only do we see he concluded his acquittal, but he commanded his agony. Look at verse 26. This this staggers the imagination. They released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Now that we've reached a verdict and we find the defendant not guilty, what is the sentence? Take Jesus and what? Crucify him? After there had been no guilt assigned to him, after no charge that could hold water was, was, was made. 
Crucify him? What madness is this? How can you declare in, in your own innocence in the death of this man by washing your hands in water and then command his murder? His crucifixion. I find no fault in this man now taking and crucifying. How can this be? The innocent Lamb of God who went about doing good, who opened blinded eyes, who caused the lame to walk, who made the sick well, who even raised the dead, who revealed to us the love of God and the way of salvation. How could it possibly be that He be found guilty? I'll tell you how. Christ died for our sins. He was delivered for our offenses. He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was declared guilty because you're guilty. He was declared guilty and suffered the sentence of death because it hang over you. And you and I could not bear it. And you and I could not bear such a penalty. He was tried by a Roman court. He was tried by a religious council. Now he was tried by a riotous crowd. Look at verse number 20 in that same chapter. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Evidently, Pilate was not the one in charge that day. Neither was the Sanhedrin. In verse 22, Pilate asked, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? It is in that moment that the trial of Jesus really shifts into the hands of of an angry mob. A crowd of people that had been whipped into a frenzy by the Sanhedrin. And they were now making the decisions and the ultimate verdict would now come from them concerning Jesus. Notice we see their baffling choice. Remember in verse 20 and 21, we touched on it a little bit. The governor and, uh, verse number 20, but the chief priests and whipped up the, uh, uh, persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas. And the governor answered and said to them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. It's a baffling choice. When faced with the choice of a Christ and a criminal, the crowd chose a criminal. Barabbas. He was truly Truly an insurrectionist. In his hatred for Rome, he had murdered and other gospels even tell us that he was a robber, a thief. He was a notorious terrorist. He was the exact opposite of Jesus. You could not get more different from the man of Christ than Barabbas. He was living for the present world. Ruled by hate and and in lawless rebellion. Can you see him standing there? As he, the convicted criminal, all of a sudden became the most popular man in Jerusalem. People chanting his name, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. The one and only time in his life that people cheered his name. Can you see him as he stepped down, being set free, and he waves into the crowd, yay! 
The first time that a whole crowd had ever accepted the man. The first time he'd ever been given friendly looks. This criminal walks into the crowd. They begin to slap him on the back and shake his hand. And All right, I'm glad you're free, Barabbas, shaking the hand of the man that would have easily taken a knife and stabbed him into the back. They chose Barabbas over Jesus. Truth be known, people do it every day. Every day. People choose Barabbas. People choose sin over Jesus every day. The choice is baffling. It makes no sense. But there is never a greater picture in the Bible of Christ's substitution for us. We were the insurrectionists. We were in rebellion against God. We were the murderers with murder in our hearts. The fornicators with lust in our hearts. We are the liars. We are the thieves. We are the covetous. We're the guilty party. And Jesus takes our place. We the vile criminal that stood in the shadow of eternal torment in hell and yet Jesus stood in my place. He took my place. My guilty stand. My place of guilt. My place of crime. Jesus stood in my place. His life for mine. His life for mine. How could it be that He would die, God's Son would die, and save a wretch like me? What love divine! What love divine! His life for mine. His life for mine. We walked free when He died on that cross that day. When I received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I was just as guilty as Barabbas. I was just a criminal. I was just a rebellion as Barabbas was. But Jesus took my place. And I walk free today because He stands condemned. Condemned in my place. Notice, we see not only a baffling choice, but a brutal cry. Pilate asks, what should I do with Jesus? Look at verse 22. Pilate said to him, what shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto Him, let Him be crucified. Let Him be crucified. I cannot think of a more greater question to be asked this morning. What do you do with Christ? What do you do with Christ? What are you going to do with this man? What are you going to do with this man, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection? What are you going to do with his word, with his church, with his gospel? What is their response? Crucify him. Crucify him. Luke's gospel said, away with him. We will not have him, Lord, over us. Crucify him. What horrifying words. There was no death more indescribably humiliating. No death more excruciatingly torturous than the cross. And they demanded it. They demanded it. Crucifying. Again, a man who had no legitimate crime uh, uh, to be charged to him. This crowd demanded it. This crowd was thirsty for blood. They wanted the death of Christ. This was mob justice. Have you done that to Jesus? As we make just a small point of application here and there, have you done that to Jesus? Away with Him. Away with Him. Crucify Him. I'll not have Him part of my life. I'll not have Him Lord over me. That is what happened and took place in this brutal cry. Finally, a bloody claim. 
Verse number 25, or verse number 25, when Pilate takes that basin of water, washes his hand, and says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See, you do it. Verse number 25, what was the crowd's response? Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. What they were saying is that they would take the responsibility for the execution. They would be responsible if it is a miscarriage of justice. We and our children will bear the guilt of this man's death were it found to be an innocent man. And so they have. And so they do. All of us. All of us. It was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. It should have been us that hung there condemned and convicted of crimes worthy of death. It should have been us that stood accused and detested. It should have been us that heard the gavel sound with a death clap. should have been us. In this day of mediation, in that first point, we must realize it is a judicial scene. Before we leap headlong into the cross of Calvary, you need to realize that God is holy and that God is just and that He orders a just inquisition to every human life. The Bible says time and time again, and God will render to every man according to his deeds. If you're here today and you say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't want God giving me, uh, I, I, I want God giving me what I deserve. I'm telling you, you don't want that. The Bible said in James 2.10, He that breaks the law in one point is guilty of all. Even if you'd only told one lie in your lifetime, the whole law of God comes crashing down upon you. You're guilty on every count of the law. Not only the Ten Commandments, but also the 600 and something laws of the Old Testament. Every law comes crashing down on you. You're guilty. But on this day, the man from Nazareth, the Lamb of God, who in this point was like the Lamb brought before the chief priest looking to find some blemish, some spot, some scuff, some wrinkle that they might reject the Lamb and finding none. None. None accusation. It is from this point that the Lamb is scooped up and taken to its bloodletting. And taking to the moment when its life was taken. But there is an inspection. If you take not this lamb. Then it will be you. In the eyes of a holy God. And you'll stand accountable. For your life. In light of what Jesus has done on the cross. In light of him taking your place. In the guilty stand. Why would you not receive him? Why would you not take him? The songwriter said it best. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted. He was condemned. I'm alive and well. His spirit lies within me because he died and rose again. You can find acceptance because in this day of mediation, he was condemned in your place. Jesus' condemnation made a way of acceptance for you before God. What glory in these moments. What a travesty of injustice 
But how precious to look upon the Lamb who stood not and didn't open his mouth, said barely, said barely ten sentences in the whole trial. And yet he died in your stead. He took your condemnation. He took the humiliation of the rejection of a whole nation. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But to as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Have you believed on his name this morning? He took your place. He took your trial. If you'll not receive him, you'll stand on your own trial. And you'll be found guilty. Let's all stand to our feet as we come with a song of invitation. Brother Kevin and Sister Delcy. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here this morning. And you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I beg you to come. I beg you to trust Him this morning. He took your place on the stand of guilt. You know you're guilty. You know your rebellion against God. You know you've said no to Him for years and years and years. You know you live by your own law of the flesh, of lasciviousness, of lust, of murder, of crime, of guilt, of shame. You live by your own law. And that law, you'll find yourself guilty before God. Come identify with the one that took your place. Would you not be the Barabbas this morning that's guilty? And step down off the stand, letting Jesus take your place. Come to Him this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we love You. I thank You for the Lord Jesus. I pray You'd speak to hearts. Oh God, deal with lives this morning. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Now, Kevin. 342, just as I am, here's your opportunity. Why not respond to Jesus today? Why put it off another day? Come to Him. Receive Christ before it's too late.